0: Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. I thought this morning I'd like to start off with uh, with just a question. Um, How many here have ever taken a speech class or or a writing class of some kind, creative writing class? Anybody here ever done that? Okay, yeah, quite a few of us. Um, What is the first rule when it comes to the introduction, okay? You're starting your book, you're starting your speech. Where do you start? What, what is the first rule of an introduction? Grab their attention. Yeah, like I just did. Just, just now, just really cool like that. Um, yeah, that's what you want to do because you got like maybe one sentence or maybe one paragraph to grab people, to hook them. Because um, after that, you know, you've lost them. So if you don't get them in that first couple of minutes, then you've lost them and you can talk for, you know, hours like I could do this morning and nobody would listen. Um So it's really important that you start off uh, with a good introduction. And uh, for those of you who are uh, fans of the Peanuts comic strip, you know there's kind of an ongoing gag um, that Snoopy is a wannabe writer. And every one of his novels starts out, It was a dark and stormy night. And one of my favorite ones, he has, uh, he's writing this newest novel and says, It was a dark and stormy night. Suddenly a shot rang out. A door slammed. A maid screamed. Suddenly a pirate ship appeared on the horizon. While millions of people were starving, the king lived in luxury. Meanwhile, on a small farm in Kansas, a boy was growing up. A light snow was falling, and a little girl from the tattered shawl had not sold a violet all day. At that very moment, a young intern at the city hospital was making an important discovery. that's his introduction. then it gets to the very end, and he says, I may have written myself into a corner. (laughs) Uh, Because that's what you want to do. You, you want to grab people's attention. And, and I don't know if you know this or not, but if you, the four gospels that we have um, that, tell, the tale, that tell the story of Jesus, only two of those gospels have the story of his birth. Um, only Luke and Matthew do that. John and, and um, the other guy, Mark, they don't. Um, just Luke and Matthew. And Luke, Luke starts off with a bang. I mean, Luke, like, he knows how to start a story. There's angels appearing. There's prophecy being. You know, people are speaking. You know, it just, it's a big, big thing. Angels appearing, all this stuff. Matthew is a different story. This is how Matthew starts off his gospel. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Aminadab, Minadab the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Solomon, Solomon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Ruth, Boaz, the father of Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David, and David, the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, father Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Ammon, Ammon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiod, Abihu the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Eliud, Eliud the father of Eliezer, Lazar the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. Practiced all week for that, let me tell you. Now, if you were going to write a story and you wanted to grab people's attention, that's not it. It's like, who cares? This is the part I skip over. I want to get right into the story. I can't even pronounce half those guys' names. Why do I care who they were? But to his original audience, who were all Jewish, this was very important stuff. We talked about it last week, how there were two very key figures in Israel's history. Abraham, who was the father of the nation of israel and then of course king david who was the great king of israel and the reason he writes this this whole genealogy thing is because he is trying to show us that jesus is a descendant of abraham he's a true jew and he comes from the line of david the king of whom god had made a covenant that there will always be a king on the throne from his lineage and so he's laying out this story so he wants us to understand this is who jesus is this is his lineage He is a true Jew of the line of David. He is the promised Messiah. Now that's important stuff, but there's another reason why this is so important. And not just important to his original audience, but important to us. And it has to do with a topic that we've been studying through this Christmas season, the topic of hope. Because in this story, particularly in the people whose names he includes, what Matthew is doing is he's laying out a case For the hope that Christ was to bring to this world. That through the people that he chose from the past and from Jesus' lineage, he is laying out this argument that the one to come, the Messiah, was bringing hope. And we're going to look at some of their stories this morning. Because I think one of the greatest enemies to hope is our past. We can't hope for the future because we are so stuck in our past. And as long as we are held hostage to the past, we will never really be free to hope. And so through Jesus' family tree, through his family's past, Matthew is introducing us to the hope of Jesus. And he wants us to understand some things about this hope that Jesus offers us. That the hope that he offers us, it's a hope that can redeem all of our family secrets. You don't have to go too far in this genealogy before you find out. This family's pretty dysfunctional. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Now you just get into the third generation and already you see dysfunction. Because Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Some of you grew up Sunday school, you know, the flannel graft thing. Um, You might remember these two guys. They were brothers. But each of their parents had a favorite. Rebecca, the mother, favorite was Jacob. The father's was Esau. And that favoritism caused a sibling rivalry that has never been equaled since. And they were at each other all the time. And, and conniving, Jacob was conniving and, and robbed him, his brother of his birthright and all this stuff. And all this stuff happened. It got so bad that Jacob had to move away. He had to just like, get out of town for a couple of years. And then when he finally comes back, he's not sure, you know, if Esau still remembers and what's going to happen, but he knows he's got to come back. And so that's what they grew up with, this favoritism that's happening. And as so often happens, the mistakes that are made by parents tend to be passed on from generation to generation to generation. And so now Jacob has sons. In fact, he has 12 of them, and he's got a favorite. And you all know the favorite. You may not know Judas so well, but you know the one brother that was the favorite. He had a special coat. His name was Joseph. You probably heard the story of Joseph and, and the coat of many colors. Or, or maybe you went and saw Donnie Osmond in the amazing technicolor dream coat. You know, same story. Okay. He had a favorite and he doted on him. And while all the other brothers had to go work in the fields and had to tend all the sheep and the cattle and all that stuff, he got to stay home because he had the fancy coat, you know, Mr. Fancy Coat. And, and every once in a while he would send his son Joseph out to the brothers to see how they were doing and what they needed and bring them you know, food or whatever. And, and, and every time he showed up, all the brothers just hated him because he knew he was special. Everybody had told him, he's special. He gets the special coat. And there was a jealousy and a rivalry that was going on there that they just hated him. And every time he showed up, they just, they just grit their teeth. And on one occasion, he shows up, and Judah, who is the one that is picked in this genealogy, Judah, who is not, by the way, the oldest, Reuben was the oldest, but Judah was the ringleader. And Judah sees Joseph coming, and he says to his brothers, here comes that dreamer. Here comes that special kid. You know, we ought to do something about this. And what they do is they strip him of his coat. They throw him down into an empty well. And then they sit down and have lunch. Yeah, Just, just another day out on the field, you know. What's that yelling? No, oh, don't worry. That's just Joseph. You know, go ahead, eat your lunch. And so they sit there eating lunch while their brother is down in this well. And, and, and so they're trying to figure out, okay, what are we going to do with him? And here comes this caravan of Ishmaelites, Midianites. And they're, come on, they're on their way. They are traitors and they're in a whole caravan. They're on their way to Egypt. And Judah sees them and it says, Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up the blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother. Yeah. I, I just love that line. You know, let's not kill him. Let's just sell him into slavery because after all, he is our brother, you know. And that's what they do. They pull him up out of the well. They sell him off. They take the money. And then what they do is they take the coat that they had stripped him of. They they dip it in some blood, some animal blood, and they bring it to their father. And they say, we don't know what happened. We couldn't find Joseph anywhere. All we could find was his coat. And look at all the blood all over it. Some ferocious animal must have destroyed him. And we couldn't even find his body. All we could find was the coat. And his father is crushed. Jacob is absolutely distraught. He mourns. He can't be consoled. And he, he just, he's just beside himself. And, and all of the brothers have this conspiracy. These 11 other brothers, they keep the secret. They keep the secret for 20 years. No one ever breaks the secret. And Judah's making sure. Don't you ever tell. You tell on me. We're all in this together. One person said, man, it's, it's over for all of us. And so for 20 years, they keep this family secret. And his best his dad knows is that his favorite son, Joseph, has been killed. He's dead. He's gone. And he's distraught over it. And for 20 years, they keep that secret. <clears throat> Meanwhile, off in Egypt, you maybe know the story of Joseph. Joseph goes through all kinds of things that I don't have time to go into this morning, but eventually rises up And becomes the second only to the pharaoh in power in Egypt. He becomes the second most powerful man in the land. And one of the ways that he got there was he interpreted a dream that the pharaoh had had. That the pharaoh had this dream. And and, and the way that he interpreted it is there's going to be seven years of great harvest. There's going to be abundant harvest. Better harvest than we've ever had. But that's going to be followed by seven years of drought and famine. So what we need to do is save up from those seven years so when the famine comes, we will still have the storage of grain and we can still survive. And that's what they do. And Joseph is put in charge of all of that. And so back up in in Canaan, where the brothers are, the famine has hit them too. And they basically eventually run out of food. And so their father, Jacob, sends Judah and his brothers down to Egypt to go and get grain. And it's a very long story. Um, But the the essence of it is they get there and they don't recognize Joseph. He sees them, he recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. See, because he's like, he's dressed like an Egyptian. And and he talks, he speaks like an Egyptian. And he walks like an Egyptian. Snuck that right in there. And they don't, they don't recognize him, but he recognizes them. And through this long process, he just kind of plays with them a little bit. And then he reveals himself, and they are exposed. Their secret is undone, and they've got no defense. They are guilty, dead to rights, and Judah is the chief of all of them, and they are terrified. They are scared to death because now they're going to get what's coming to them. This is the the second most powerful man in the nation, He can do anything. I mean, he can just have us wiped out right here on the spot. And they fall down flat on their faces, and they're so terrified. They're just scared to death. But here's what happens in the story. Instead of getting what they deserve, the vengeance, the payback, that they really did deserve, Joseph gives them grace. He forgives them. In fact, he says to them, don't be distressed, and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me here because... It was to save lives that God sent me here ahead of you. And it's a picture of grace. A family secret that had been kept for 20 years. Now it is exposed. And you think, now it's going to happen. Now the hammer's coming down. This is it. But instead of the punishment that they deserve, they get what they don't deserve. They get grace. And the reason Matthew picks that story and picks Judah's story instead of Joseph's story is he wants us to understand that whatever your family secrets might be, whatever your past might be, whatever those secrets that you keep yourself might be, and you might think, this disqualifies me, this makes me hopeless to God, there's hope for you. This is the hope that Jesus came to bring, the hope that can redeem our family secrets. And not only that, but the hope that he offers also it also enables us to rise above our reputations. You go a little bit further on in the story. You get the chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 4. Matthew 1, 4. And, and here's the rest of the re- genealogy. Ram, the father... I, I love that name. Ram. What's your name? Ram. Ram, the father of Amenadab. Amenadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Solomon. Solomon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Now, here's another surprise in the genealogy. There's a woman. In fact, there's four women mentioned in the genealogy here, which is very atypical. The women would not be mentioned in a genealogy. Not at all. You just you trace the line through the men, through the fathers. And that's why, that's why it's all these men, the father of the father of the father of the father of. But here, there's a woman stuck in here. And what's really interesting as you read through it, the four women that he picks to include in the genealogy are not the four women you would expect. He doesn't pick Sarah, who was Abraham's wife, the mother who started this whole thing, her story's not in there. Rebecca, her story, that's a great story. She's not in there. The people that he picks, the women that he picks, he picks Rahab. Now, that might not mean anything to you, but to his Jewish audience, as they read Rahab, they go, "Ah, Rahab? Because Rahab had a reputation. Rahab had a label. And in fact, when you read her name in Scripture... Most often, it's Rahab the, and there's the label. Which is, again, that's not unusual, because that happens all the time. If I find find it all through the Bible, that that there's people whose, their name, you know, so-and-so the blank. Like, you know, you know some of these, like um, John. John the Baptist. Very, very good. Um, Herod the? The great. Herod the great. Very good. Okay, for all you Bible scholars, Uriah the? Hittite. I know, you were going to say that. It just you know, it just didn't come to you. Attila, the? Conan, the? Buffy, the? My favorite, Jabba, the? Hutt. Yeah, you don't know Uriah the Hittite, but you know Jabba the Hutt. And Rahab has a label. And I don't know if you know what that is. If it's King James Version, which sounds a lot cleaner... It's Rahab the harlot. Which if you've got a modern version translation, it's Rahab the prostitute. There's a prostitute right in the middle of the Christmas story. What is up with that? Now, if you don't know Rahab's story, let me give you a brief one on that one. The family of Abraham becomes not just a family. Now, they're down in Egypt with Jacob and Joseph and all that. Now the family has grown. It's like a nation. There's like millions of people. And, and another pharaoh has come along that doesn't know anything about Joseph, doesn't care anything about Joseph. And they have taken all of Abraham's descendants, this nation of Israel, and they have made them slaves. And so God sends Moses through that burning bush thing, you know, out there. He brings them out of their slavery. That's the book of Exodus. You might want to read that um, and follow the story. He brings them out of, that's what Exodus means, out of, out of Egypt. They wander for about 40 years in the wilderness, and then he brings them up to the, to the promised land. Although now it's not Moses, now it's Joshua. And they get up to the promised land, they get right on the edge, um, right at the River Jordan, which is the river that separated, and they sent some spies in. Joshua sent a couple of spies in, and they go to spy out the land. And they go to the capital city, Jericho. And while they are there, somebody spots them and says, These are not our people, these guys are from somewhere else, they're spies. And so they go to report, they go to get some soldiers. Meanwhile, the spies duck in. They duck into the house of Rahab, the harlot, and she hides them, takes them up on the roof, puts them on the you know, piles of hay all over them, keeps them buried under there. And, and then when they come down, when the soldiers come knocking at the door, she says, oh, yeah, they were here. They were just here. In fact, they left just a bit ago. And if you hurry, you might catch them before they get out the city gates. And so they take off. And so what she does is she saves their lives. And so here is this outsider, this enemy of Israel, this Canaanite woman, this prostitute who saves these spies. And she knows. She knows because they have heard. They have heard what's going on. In fact, you read in Joshua chapter 2. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites, And verse 11, and when we heard of it, our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord, your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. He said, we have heard of you people and not just of you. We have heard of your God. And I know, I know there is no hope for us because we've heard of what God has done for you. And there's no hope for our nation. And there's no hope for this city. And there's no hope for my family. There is no hope for me. It's a hopeless case. But if you would, when you come and you take the city, would you spare my family? Now, what's really interesting is the words that are used here, and we don't know what her original language is, but the, the Hebrew writers that wrote the book of Joshua, they pick this word, and it says, we heard how the Lord dried up the water, that the Lord your God. The word that is used there is the Hebrew word, and we're not really sure how it's pronounced because it's never really spelled out. It was, it was considered to be so sacred, so holy. You don't say the name of God. The best we know and the best we've kind of theorized is that the name is Yahweh, which simply means what he said to Moses when Moses said, Who should I say sent me? You tell him, I am sent you. I am that I am. The existing one. That's all you need to know. And she, they used that name when she says, I have heard of you, and I know what your Lord, Yahweh, has done. And there's no hope for us. And I know also that Yahweh, your Lord, is God above all. All gods, all these household gods in my home, all these gods that all of my ancestors and all my culture worship, they are nothing. Your God is God. She is totally helpless. She is an enemy. She's an outside. She's a prostitute. It's a hopeless situation. And yet, what does she experience? When the nation of Israel comes in and, and the walls of Jericho fall, she and her family are spared. And it is another picture of grace. A hopeless situation for her. And her reputation preceded her. And yet, she is rescued. She is saved. Because of her belief and her faith in Yahweh. The God above all gods. And you might be here this morning and you think your situation is hopeless. You got a label. You got a reputation. I'll give you a couple of them. Came up with this week. Larry the liar. That's your label. Yeah, he's a liar. Alice, the alcoholic. Lester, the luster. Irene, the irresponsible. Gary, the greedy. Chelsea, the cheater. Adam, the addict. Hal, the hothead. Maybe some of those labels you've taken on yourself. Maybe there were labels that were put on you when you were a child growing up that maybe you heard from your parents or some of your friends are not-so-good friends. And they called you names. They gave you labels. Labels like stupid or geeky or lazy. Partier, clumsy, chubby, stoner, tweaker, creep, useless. And you have carried that label all of your life. And it's ridiculous. You don't even know why. But that label has stuck with you. And you think that for some reason causes you an inability to be close to God. You got a label. Now I want you to know whatever your reputation, whatever your label, whatever it is that makes you think there is no hope for me because I am a... It's not hopeless. It's the hope that Christ came to give us. It's the hope that redeems our secrets. It's the hope that rises above our reputations. It is the hope that heals us of our shame. You go a little bit further. Verse 5, Obed the father of Jesse, Jesse the father of King David. Finally, finally we get to King David. Okay, here's a good story. We all know David. (laughs) David was the great king. David was the father of Solomon whose mother had been Uriah's wife. What? Except everybody reading this, they know that story too. Matthew doesn't choose All of David's great exploits, all of his historic deeds, all of his heroic um, actions, all things that he did for the nation of Israel, none of that is recorded in the genealogy. What is recorded in the genealogy is that David was the father of Solomon whose mother had been Uriah's wife. It is the most shameful event in David's life. It's the stain on his record It is the blot on his resume. It is the one thing that he would hope would never be remembered. Remember all the good stuff. Remember I was a man after God's own heart. Remember all the good stuff. But please, please don't remember this. But it's on his permanent record. It's there for us thousands of years later. That David was the father of Solomon whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Doesn't even name her. Bible scholars, anybody know the name of Uriah's wife? Bathsheba. Oh, oh yeah, I know the story of David and Bathsheba. If you don't, it goes a little like this. David was king, and one of his most trusted confidants in general was a guy named Uriah. And Uriah was off to war, and he was married to a woman named Bathsheba. David had an affair with Bathsheba, and she became pregnant because of it. And now he's in big trouble because Uriah is off on the battlefield. i got to do something about this. And it's a long, complicated story. You can read about that one in 2 Samuel, and I encourage you to do it. But what happens is he sends a note to his, his lead general and says, put Uriah into the heat of the battle. And when the battle gets the fiercest, call a retreat except for Uriah. And Uriah is killed in battle, which now leaves Bathsheba, a widow, who David can marry, and everything's covered up. It all worked out. It's all taken care of. No one's ever going to know. It's my kids, sure, but we're married. No problem. Except that there is this pesky prophet of God named Nathan. And Nathan shows up one day to David's throne room. He says, King David, there was a rich man, a very rich man, Who owned thousands of cattle and sheep? An incredibly rich man. And then there was a very, very poor man who had but one little ewe. And the rich man had a visitor come to visit him. But instead of killing one of his own sheep, one of his own cattle to provide the meal, what he did was he stole the ewe from the poor man, sacrificed that, and used that to feed his guest. And David goes, What? In my kingdom? That kind of stuff is going on in my camp. And this is what he says. That man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Nathan looks at him and says to David, you are that man. He is caught dead to rights. He is guilty and the cover-up has come to light, and he's got no excuse. He's got no defense. He is flat-out guilty. There's nothing he can do. But instead of punishment, he gets grace. He repents. He mourns. In fact, in Psalms, you can read his prayer. Oh, God, cleanse my heart. Lord, search me. Lord, forgive me. And God forgives him. He deserves death for what he has done. He even says so. But instead of getting what he receives, what he gets is is grace. What he gets is hope. And it's another reminder and that's why Matthew includes him in this story because he wants us to know whatever our past, whatever our secrets, whatever our reputation, whatever it is that we are ashamed of, there is still hope for you. Why else does Matthew use all these examples? There's a lot of others. We can't go into all of them this morning. But here's the point. Why did he do that? Why did he include all these? Because he knew this. He knew that the point of the Christmas story is that Jesus is not just for sinners. He is from sinners. That what we need in this life is not a leg up, not a little bit of help, not a little bit of cleaning up my act. What we need is a Savior. Because you see, Bathsheba and David's story and Rahab's story and Judah and his brother's story is Matthew's story. And he is about to tell this story. And part of his story is that when Jesus came to him and said, come and follow me, that Matthew dropped what he had. He was a tax collector, a very profitable business. And he dropped it and left it and he followed Jesus. And one of the first things he did was he hosted a party where he brought Jesus, who is his newfound savior and rabbi and all of his disciples. And he brings all of his tax collector and sinner friends, which nobody else would hang out with. And it was the only friends that Matthew had because nobody else would hang out with him. And there is this party going on between Jesus, this righteous rabbi and all these scumbags, these tax collectors and sinners and the righteous, the self-righteous people of the time. They come and they see this going on. They won't even go in the house. They just see the party going on and say, what in the world is going on here? I thought this was a holy man. I thought he was a righteous rabbit. How in the world can he be hanging out with these kinds of people? And Jesus overhears them. And he turns to them and he says these words. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. For I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And that's all of us. Because Judah's story is Matthew's story. It's my story. is your story. On some level, it's all of our story. And Matthew wants to make it clear from the get-go that this baby to be born is not just someone who's going to teach us some good stuff, And he's not someone who's just going to help us get a better handle on our lives and straighten out the messes that we've made, maybe. He is the one who has come as Savior of the world because that is what we need. Because we are guilty, every one of us. And what Matthew is saying in giving this genealogy is that everything has changed because the world's system and the world's religious system is always about Earning my way with God. If I do enough of the good things, if I can refrain from doing the bad things, if I can live up to a better standard, if I can live up to a really, really good standard, then maybe, maybe God will love me. Maybe God will bring me to himself. And Matthew is saying, no, no, all bets are off. Because it doesn't matter what you've done. And it doesn't matter what you've refrained from doing. Because it's not about you about his grace. See, for every one of us, if we rely on our own best efforts, it's a hopeless case. We are without hope when it comes to God. But God, God has drawn near to those who drew away from him. And that's what the Christmas story is all about that's why he goes through this genealogy he wants us to understand and by the way this is not a new thing god has worked from grace all the way back in genesis with abraham and jacob and judah and the brothers and all that this has always been god's modus operandi he has always worked by grace but now now it is full fruition now it is available to you paul wrote about it this way to the ephesian church Because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Would you bow your heads with me? Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Venetia, California. I'm not afraid of